Hey, it's Laura. If you're listening to this, you're not hearing the complete unedited version of this conversation. If you want in on that, you can get it by becoming a TMST Plus member. Just head over to our website at tmstpod.com and click support. All right, enjoy the show. Hi, it's Michael here, and I'm stepping in to introduce Laura's conversation with Sharon Adams. Today's Tell Me Something True is kind of our version of the Pixar movie Inside Out. You know, it's it's all about our emotions, how we get to know them, how they run us, and how they shut us off from other people. And our guide is Sharon Adams. She's a master trainer and a facilitator in workshops around emotional intelligence and conflict resolution. She's also someone who has just this profound insight into the lived reality of unconscious bias and inclusion, and the stories that she shares are just super relatable. As Sharon says in our conversation, emotional intelligence is the ability to recognize and identify and regulate your own emotions and those of others, and that strong emotional intelligence is central to our ability to have empathy so that we can be present and accepting when we see things coming up in others. If you've worked or lived with someone who isn't present to their emotions, or if you've struggled with it yourself, you know in your gut why emotional intelligence has to be at the center of everything that we do, and why it's foundational to our success as human beings. And look, I get that you may be thinking that this all seems like really obvious or basic, but here's the catch. Many many of us can't readily identify our emotions. And the way that we're labeling our emotions doesn't have the kind of nuance and specificity that we need to stay in our bodies and connected to the world. And that these gaps, they drive a lot of the unconscious bias that exists in our lives. And it's at the root of the conflicts that we face at work and at school, in our faith communities, just all over the place. And as Sharon makes clear, Emotional intelligence is kind of like our Swiss army knife of relationships and understanding how to use all the tools in it is the key to enjoying a peaceful life. Sharon was a blast to get to know. We learned a lot, so we hope you enjoy it. I wanted to start with emotional intelligence mm-hmm. because I feel like it's this area where people know that it's a thing, but they don't really, they don't, don't really know what it is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's sort of the shorthand for a really deep topic. What is emotional intelligence and why should people care? Yeah. So if I had to put it into a sentence, I would say emotional intelligence is the ability to recognize and identify and regulate your own emotions and those of others. So it's a combination of what do we do with our emotions in the moment in many cases. And then when I see um, uh, things coming up with other people, how do I address that, which we call empathy? Mm -hmm. And why Mm -hmm. does it matter? Well, we know that <laughs> IQ is fabulous, right? It's what gets us in the circle. So you got to have it. So we don't right. want to just completely dismiss IQ. It's really important. But how many right. people work with folks who are super intelligent, intriguingly intelligent, but you can't stand mm-hmm. in space with them? Yeah. So, um, and we can all think of people right now, like, oh my gosh, I got a list, right? We all have, we all have. <laughs> yeah, totally. But when you have high EQ, it can actually help you to outperform others, even if they, even if you have a lower IQ. So mm-hmm. it's really a powerful tool. It helps us to connect with folks. It helps us to understand difficult ideas, to share um, interesting ideas. It helps us to bring folks together so that they're more productive, they're more creative. Um, There's a sense of belonging when you have an institution or organization that has high EQ. So it's really at the center um, of all that we do. It it should be at the center of all that we do in, in order to be successful. The thing I love about this is that it's something that can actually be learned. So 
if you're in a environment where there's high emotional intelligence, what does that feel like? What are some of the characteristics yeah, that you notice? And, you know, before I share that, I want to go back to a comment that you just made that was so powerful, so powerful, yeah. pivotal to this subject. And it is that emotional intelligence can be learned. And when you think about IQ, we don't grow our IQ very much after the age of 17, right? It pretty much, it right. is what it is. I mean, we can learn more info, information, but we don't grow our right. IQ. EQ, on the other hand, you can grow and go as far as you'd like. You can learn, you can develop, you can evolve. And so I think that I, I didn't want to miss that powerful point that you made. That No, I, I agree. Grow it. I want you to maybe touch on the capacity for us to learn and what you've seen in your work, mm-hmm. the, the maybe tough cases where you've just seen people really change. Yeah. What is so important um, around change as it relates to EQ is self-awareness. Because so often mm-hmm. um, when people are not self-aware, things come up that they have caused and they blame everyone else, right? And so you're the one with the problem. <laughs> and so right. when that that's happens, our natural instinct, it right? Is, it really is. Thank you for sharing that. But when we aren't able to be self-aware, um, we lose the ability to learn about how to, how to make change. I like to this crazy example, and I use this quite a bit. Imagine that you are visiting someone's home. And you arrive at their home and they have this beautiful pool and they check you in with your room, where your room is. And you get in there and you think, oh, my gosh, I'm going to go put my swimsuit on and I am going to get into that pool. And you're like so excited. And they're like, hey, make yourself at home, you know, whatever works for you. So you go walking out to the pool and you're like, oh, my gosh, I am going to do a cannonball. This is so cool. And so you back up as far as you can and you just go running and running and running and you grab your knees and you jump into the pool and you make this enormous splash and you're like, wow, that was the biggest cannonball I've ever made. How cool is that? And then you go to get out of the pool and you notice that there were people sitting around the pool in their lounge chairs. You have splashed cool water into their drinks. Their towels are wet and they are just furious. And you get out of the pool going, what's wrong with them? Like, they just had a great cannonball and they, they, they're like losing it. And that's yeah. an example of what happens when we yeah. lack self-awareness. We do things, yeah. make this big splash, and then we're just like scratching our heads. Like, I don't, I don't, what's wrong with them? You know, mm-hmm. as young people would say, mm-hmm. they're tripping. And I completely forgot your question. <laughs> oh, it's fine. No, 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 no. I, no, that's great. I, I'm curious about the capacity for people to change. Yeah, they totally have the capacity to change. They totally have the ability to step out to the pool and look around Engage um, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, control their emotions. Yes, I would love to do a cannonball, but oh, wow, look, there's people sitting around the pool. Maybe that's not appropriate right now, right? But that does take some willingness. That does take this desire to learn because it's work. It's not like you can just read a book and go, I'm emotionally intelligent, right? It takes work. It takes pilot and error. It takes forgiveness of yourself when you make mistakes so you don't get stuck. I've seen some great transformations, but it really has to do with people. In most cases, they've made some huge mistakes and they're at the point where it's like, we don't want you to work here anymore. We love you. You are fabulous in terms of your intelligence that you bring, but we we can't function. This is toxic, right? Mm. And they'll get to like this Mm -hmm. crucial point and then they'll say, okay, I I, I want to do better. Or even in a relationship where the person says, I can't deal with you anymore. But usually yeah. they get to a breaking point and that's that's when they want to lean in and learn more. Okay, so 
What does someone's life look like when emotional intelligence is in place? Yeah. So there's three things that I like to point out. And you can ask yourself these three questions. First question is, how quickly can you get back to center when something dishevels you? Whether it's a conflict at work or um, in your relationship with your partner or something that happened at the grocery store or someone who flipped you off on the freeway, how long does it take you to get back to center? Does it topple your whole world and you lose perspective? Um, So that's a question you want to ask because if you are emotionally intelligent, you're able to put it in perspective, you're able to not take it personally, and you're able to problem solve. And when we lose the ability to problem solve, because of a conflict, because of an issue, we know that it's a matter of emotional intelligence. Does Can I pull cool? apart this one point? Sure. Yes, because I feel like I feel like this one thing you said is so important and not taking it personally. Yeah. What is behind that? Oh my gosh. See, when I take it personally, and I get, if I get out of that pool and the people around me are saying, I can't believe you did this. I'm like, this is, I don't know what you're talking about. Why are you attacking me? Why? I'm just having a good time. What's wrong with you? Right. As opposed to, oh my gosh, this is what I did. I can see the impact that it's had. But if I don't step outside of myself, I lose the ability to see um, the issue from the other person's point of view. When it's all about me, it's all about me, (laughs) right? And nothing else matters. So I've got to be able to step outside of that in order to be able to problem solve, in order to think critically, in order to control my behavior and control my emotions. And I love the book. Um, I love this book, um, The Four Agreements. If you have agreements, yes. Yes, I really encourage people to read that. It does really stress a lot about the whole idea of not taking things personally. Yeah, that was life changing for me. That mm-hmm. that teaching in particular, in particular, I think it is for a lot of people because it's really painful. It's not like when when you're taking everything personally and it's all about you. You're living in this cloud of positive feelings about yourself. It's actually mm-hmm. really painful to have everything be about you. It's a, it's an obsession of self is what we often call it in recovery circles. It's an extraordinarily painful place to be because you become kind of paranoid. You become almost childlike, you know, you stay in this childlike place of there's no room to expand and it, it, and it it can go beyond the concept of I, right. That's a, that's a, it's a lonely place to be for one. And it's very, it's it's a uh, emotionally stuck place. So it really is. And then the second question is: Are you able to name your emotions as they come up? Can you mm-hmm. say, "Oh, okay, this is anger. Okay, I'm feeling sad right now," or "I'm feeling frustrated. I'm feeling pointed at. Right? What am I feeling right now?" And then, am I able to make adjustments? to those feelings so that I'm not blobbing on other people. I like to say, Mm. name it to tame it, right? When I name what it is that I'm experiencing, then I can problem solve. But if I don't know what those emotions are, and it's just one big glob of feeling and emotion, then I'm going to act in a way that's not reflective of where I want to be. Why does naming help it? Why does naming help it? Like, what is that? Great question. Naming helps to put it in its place because what happens is emotions want to be all over the place, right? I'm like, so I'm angry, not just at the person who flipped me off. Now I go to a store and I'm angry at that person who didn't check me out quick enough. Now I'm angry at my spouse because he didn't let the dog out. I'm angry at the garbage man, right? But when I name it to tame it in the moment, I put it in its place. Right now, Mm. I'm feeling angry because this guy flipped me off on the freeway. I'm not gonna take it personally. He doesn't know me, I don't know him. I can go about my, my merry way, but I've gotta name that. 
because it'll, it'll just become this big giant thing that can impact so many other things that don't even apply, right? And the implied in there is learning what emotions you are feeling because so often they just feel like these balls of energy and we react however we want. It's, it's almost like we react in whatever way we feel is going to give us the, the relief that we need, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. From feeling true. that, the discomfort yeah. of that. So yeah. do you, does your background teach that, that each emotion has a sort of corresponding action that it, or a question for us? Absolutely. Like anger is a anger is a boundary being broken, and so we ask what boundary is being broken, either but in, internally or externally. Is that is that your the school of thought you come from? Absolutely, but I I do it in a much more general way. So whenever mm-hmm. I'm feeling something uncomfortable, whether it's anger or sadness or whatever, there is one question that I always ask myself: What am I afraid of? Because that's really the pivotal point behind this, this fear. I'm angry because yes. someone flipped me off. What, what am I afraid of about that? I'm angry because I've been waiting too long in a, in a line. Is that because um, I'm feeling neglected? Like um, I'm being ousted? I'm not as important as I thought I was? Like, what am I afraid of? And I begin to pull that apart. And then once we do that, we can, again, put it in its place. And that's what is so important around emotional intelligence is putting the emotion in its place. Not not to dishonor it, not to disregard yeah. it, but to give it perspective. And now I can think creatively about all the other areas once I put the emotion right. in its place. Yeah. So could you give an example, like in a, in a workplace environment, yeah. how how this could be applied, maybe something that you've encountered recently. Well, let me give you an example that happened to me just the other day. I had a dentist Perfect. Yeah. And uh, yeah. early morning appointment. I always prefer early morning because I then it's they're not backed up yet, right? And I can get in and out. So I mm. had an 8.30 appointment. I was like, yes, I got an 8.30 appointment. I get in there and I sit in the dentist chair and they're already backed up. I'm sitting there and sitting there and I'm just like, I got appointments, I've got things I need to do. So I'm on my phone trying to you know, rearrange my life and I'm feeling so frustrated and so irritated. How long is this gonna take? Maybe I should just cancel the whole point, appointment and just get up and just walk out. And then I began to name my feelings as I was sitting there. Okay, let me put down my phone. What am I feeling right now? Well, I'm feeling kind of anxious, feeling a little annoyed. I'm feeling angry because I had an 8.30 appointment. It's 9.30 and I still haven't been seen, right? So I'm naming all of these emotions. Then the dental assistant comes in and he was just frazzled. And so he's running from one bay to the other, trying to help people and to prepare them for the doctor to come in. And I realized that I needed to be in empathy right immediately Mm. and I said to him gosh looks like you all are having a challenging day today and he looked at me almost like shocked like (laughs) just yeah yeah it's been hard we had two people who didn't show up one of the doctors is running late and and so now I'm not taking this personally right I've already named my feelings I've put them in in a space and now I'm able to be empathetic. So I'm able to acknowledge his feelings, which is my third characteristic. Are we able to identify yeah. emotions in others? And are we able to treat them the way they want or they need to be treated? And so suddenly when I have this empathy rising up, my feelings of anxiety and frustration are shifted because I can't do both at the same time. I can't be angry and frustrated and then also be empathetic toward him. And I'm thinking, wow, this is hard. And I said, well, is there anything I can do to make it a little lighter? So I had another procedure planned. He goes, gosh, if you don't mind coming back to do that one thing, that would just be amazing. And I said, no problem. Right. So my empathy now is actually helping to relieve uh, my frustration. And it's also helping him to be a better practitioner and he's able to provide 
better service to me and probably to everybody else in the, in the office. Totally. <laughs> right. That changed the rest of his morning, probably. Exactly. Now think about the opposite. So he comes in. Yeah. I'm frustrated. I don't have the ability to name and tame my emotions. I don't have the ability to change my impulses. And I'm just like, what the heck is going on here? I've been here at 830. This is ridiculous. I'm never coming back to this place. You are a horrible assistant. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. Now I'm more worked up, right? My emotions are not in its place. They are all over the place. He's going to have a worse day. I'm going to leave and I'm going to be irritated (laughs) with everyone else that I meet with, right? So there's that different, that contrast. Um, We see emotional intelligence and how powerful it can be. Now, I've made an impact on him whenever I see him, whenever I go back to that office, he will always remember that experience, right? Um, And I'll probably have better service as a result of that, as opposed to this angry person jumping up and down, furious, and and I I had a right to be angry. Right. It's not as if my emotions are displaced. I mean, I had a right to feel that. But being able to shift that impulse to um, to be empathetic and to control my own emotions are really so important in this whole process around learning to be emotionally intelligent. Yeah. And I love that example. It's perfect. Everyone can relate to that. And it, it occurs to me that it's it's a lot about responsibility for your own experience. You can't control what happens, yeah. most of what happens, right. but but taking responsibility for your own experience. Yeah. Would you say that's true? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, but, and it all goes back to what you were saying earlier about I'm not taking things personally. This, I mean, that was not about me. This was about a whole bunch right. of other things that came into play before I even stepped into the office. But if I make it about me, I'm unable to be empathetic. One of the things that you talk about is having an accurate self-perception. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does that mean? So if I go into that dentist's office and I think I am the cat's meow, then <laughs> who do you think you are not to see me on time? Are you out of your mind? I am this, <laughs> I am that. But Accurate self-perception says, I'm a patient, right? And no more important than all the other patients who are having to wait. Right? So I'm seeing myself for who I am and seeing that I really need to exercise responsibility. That's my role, right? Is to be responsible yeah. for my own emotions yeah. and for the way that I address other people. That's in a, For me, that's the most important concept is where am I responsible here? How can I be more yeah. empathetic? I think the tendency is for people to overinflate their own importance. Yeah. But do you find that sometimes people don't have any sense of importance, that their self-perception is so small mm. that 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 creates a, a different, but similarly, maybe a destructive dynamic for them oh, and others I around them? totally agree with you. It can go the exact opposite to where, oh, I'm not important. Go ahead and take all day. It's okay. You know, I'm, it's just me. And, you know, yeah, the exact opposite. You want to land somewhere in between. Your work must have really been, and I would imagine continue to be, of extraordinary importance last year due to the pandemic, the cultural things that we were facing and continue to face, and just the, the, all these factors that have contributed to this, the, uh, so much tension and so, so much um, polarization, yeah. you know, othering of people. Great word, yeah. Can you just talk about that? Like what, what, it, why should we, maybe this is too obvious of a question, but I just, I want to acknowledge the moment that we're in. Sure. And what you're seeing. Great question. Oh my gosh. And, you know, talk about a perfect storm if there be any such thing, right? Where, I mean, the pandemic, the racial unrest, the violence against the AAPI community, 
I mean, just, mm-hmm. I mean, we could listen the political environment, all of the environmental things that are taking place, whether it's fires or earthquakes or floods. I mean, just, it's enormous. In fact, I made a joke the other day. I was talking to this person from Africa and I said, this is just unbelievable. You know, I'm just waiting for the locust to show up. And he sat back and his eyes got big and he goes, they have. And I was just like floored. He said in the community where he lives in Africa, thousands of locusts landed and ate up hundreds and hundreds of acres of farmland. And they don't know how they're going to recuperate from the lack of the food source where they were already low. And I thought, oh, my gosh, the locusts have arrived. (laughs) So, yeah, we just were uh, and are in the face of so much uh, unrest. And what I'm seeing, to answer your question, is, you know, I've been doing this work for some time. And I've always been, you know, pretty busy. People inquisitive and wanting training and wanting, you know, consulting and so forth. But now it's a necessary part of of work. Before it was like a nice to have. Hey, we'd love to have you come and do this, this and that. Oh, great. Thank you. That was awesome. Now it's need to come and do this, this and that. And can you follow up? And what kind of other tools do you have to assist us and I mean, so it's different in the sense that people feel like it's necessary right now in order for them to navigate their world of work and outside of work even. Places of worship are having the same types of issues. Um, Just community uh, connections. I mean, we see it on, on all levels. That would be, I think, the one most single thing that I'm seeing is that we see it as a point of necessity, whether it's around training, whether it's around restorative conversations, whether it's around consulting, how do we handle this or that within the workplace, whether it's how to develop employee resource groups or or whatever, all of it's a necessity at this point. Does that make you feel hopeful? Are you more hopeful Hmm. now, honestly, Mm -hmm. about the work that you're doing and the impact it could have than you were two years ago or, or, do you feel something different? Wow, that is such a profound question. Don't be afraid to answer, honestly. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you for that. I needed that permission, honestly. I feel hopeful, but I also feel some concern. I feel hopeful because people are reaching out. People who never even cared, right, about diversity, equity, and inclusion now are asking questions and they're leaning in as opposed to leaning out. That I feel very hopeful yep. about. What makes me sad is um, I feel like in some respects we're swinging the pendulum to the other side and um, we've entered into this cancel culture, right? Mm -hmm. So you said this one thing, so we're going to chop your legs off and toss you into the seat. (laughs) And that makes me sad. And I'll even say fearful. Right, that we are moving from one extreme to the other. And the idea of assuming positive intent is Mm. almost a mystery anymore. And so what do I mean by assuming positive intent? It means that I assume that you're operating to the best of your ability, even when I disagree, even when I don't understand it. So it doesn't mean that you don't need training. doesn't mean that you don't need restorative conversations. doesn't mean that you don't need connection. So we need to address the issue. But do we need to chop you off at the knees? Do we need to peel your toenails right. off, right? Can we have you in a space of growth? And I think that that's what's missing for us is that middle ground of understanding that we're all at different places of our journey. Um, and let's bring folks along. Right. In a way that's not judgmental, that's not unkind. No one learns from being beat up in that way. Right. Mm -hmm. We learn from being brought along um, and being kept in a space that says that we're all here. We're all on this journey. Some of us are a little farther than the other, but we're we're all in this together. Um, And so the answer to your question is, is two sided. Yes, I feel hopeful. But on the other side, very concerned about the way we're addressing 
calling people out as opposed to calling them in, um, embracing them in, um, in a space of safety um, and non-judgmental um, interactions, I, I think are really important. I love that answer and it just feel very honest. I think I find in my experience, and I would love to hear what you think that when we get one-on-one -on -one with people or in smaller groups or facilitated yeah. situations, it's a very different experience oh, yeah. and empathy is possible, change is possible, growth is possible, forgiveness is possible, humility is possible, healing conversations. But when we, when we, well, social media is a whole thing. That's a place where I see it, uh, the fearful thing that you're talking about a lot. Yeah. I heard someone say once it's hard, to, it's hard to hate people up close. Mm -hmm. Do you find that that's true that in in a room, <laughs> in one on one or in small groups, it feels more hopeful than it does when you zoom out and you you look at the media or you look at social media and things like that? Yeah. Let me answer that question by being a little bit, hopefully not too scientific. <laughs> so we are very tribal in nature, right? It's really important for us to be a part of the pack. Because if you think about Neanderthal or in the animal kingdom, when someone or something was ostracized from the pack, it meant that there was a matter of life or death. I could die because I'm not a part of the pack. So that means I'm subject to someone picking me off very quickly. When you yep. think of Neanderthal and their use of the amygdala, right? The amygdala says fight, flight, or freeze. It was a matter of survival. So when you yep. address someone in a group, whether it's on social media or in a large room and you call them out, their immediate fear is very primal. I'm being yeah. ousted from the tribe and it could mean a matter of life and death. And they have that same emotion, right? That Neanderthal or that an animal would have when they're ousted because it means that I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be eaten yes. alive. Now talk about naming and taming. We don't have the ability in most cases to name that emotion. We just rise no. up out of it, right? And we start to you know, accuse and we fight. We personally, we fight, right? Yeah. But when I pull someone over in a in a one on one situation or in a group, and we're able to dialogue in a non judgmental way, there's not that fear that I'm going to be ousted from the pack. It's not that fear of imminent death, that very primal um, need to survive. Mm -hmm. So it does make a huge difference as to how we interact around these issues. So I want, now I want to talk about the, I think you call it the mood meter. How does this work in a, in an, a work environment? Yeah. You know, because I think there's this idea that in work cultures that we don't bring our whole selves to work. We're not supposed to display certain emotions, really many emotions, uh, except for positive ones at work. So how has introducing something like this gone for you yeah. over time, uh, uh, you know, in workplace environments, how can people use it? Right. So that chart was developed by Dr. Brackett out of Yale University. And there's several different versions of it, but I like that one yeah. because it's really super crystal clear. So um, when we think about emotions, in order to be emotional intelligent, we really have to have a strong vocabulary around emotions because that vocabulary helps us to express what we're feeling to other people, but it also helps us to express to ourselves, right? So that we can name it and tame it for ourselves. So yep. an example would be, imagine if uh, we were in, the, in a workplace together and imagine that you decided you're gonna host a happy hour and you got together with a bunch of folks and said, hey, we're gonna have a happy hour today at four o'clock and we're going to this particular restaurant. Okay. But you didn't invite me. So, and so the next day I came to you and I said, Laura, I feel sad that you didn't invite me to, um, to the happy hour. So you get it, right. You understand I feel sad, but what if I said, I feel alienated that you didn't invite me mm. to the happy hour. I really felt dismal. 
about the fact that you had this event and I wasn't invited. I feel troubled, right? That's a little different mm-hmm. nuance, right? That you didn't invite me to yeah. the happy hour. So I could say I feel sad. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with that. But the more I explain clearly in a word as to what I felt, the better I am able to communicate to you how I'm feeling. And it also helps me to drill down as to what my feelings were. Because feelings don't like to be dishonored. They don't like to be disregarded. Mm, no. Because if no, they, they don't. Are, they're going to come out in another way. I'm going to show you how I feel in a meeting. Right? You're going to yes. come up with an idea, and I'm going to poo-poo your idea because I didn't get to go to happy hour, and I don't feel like I was hurt. Right? Or I'm not going to respond to your email be- tomorrow because you didn't invite me, and I didn't acknowledge those feelings. So they're going to come out. It's when and it's how. Mm-hmm. So being able to express those feelings, even if they're not exp- you're not expressing it to the person, being able to name it and tame it within yourself and to control your emotions is really important in the workplace. And, 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 and I say the workplace because that's my area of expertise, but in, in relationships, in families, right, yeah. in every area of, of our connection, it's really important to name it and tame it. I've heard that expressed as emotional granularity. And I think that's what you're saying, get that that emotional granularity is really important. Right, and I use a tool that I find super, super helpful. If you are part of any recovery circle, and you might be familiar with this tool, but I train to it quite a bit. It's called the five Gs. I have not heard this. Okay, so what I do every evening, um, or sometimes in the morning, I sit down and I write out the five G's. So the first one is gratitude. And Mm. I write, what am I grateful for? Suppose I'm doing this at night. What am I grateful for that took place today? And it might be a list of things. And then secondly, what could I exercise more grit in doing? So I need to push a little harder or, or really pull something apart. And then the next one is glitches. Where was there a glitch? Things didn't go quite the Mm. way I wanted them to go. What could I have done differently? And then the fourth one is grace. Where do I need to give myself more grace, right? Whether it's an interaction between someone, whether it's the way I'm approaching a situation, uh, whether it's something that a feeling that I have and I haven't honored that feeling within myself, And then the fifth one is goals. What are some goals I want to set for myself for this day? So the five G's really help us to put the emotions, again, in its place, right? So it's not this one big giant thing. I'm separating them out. And because if if emotions are just one big giant thing and I'm saying it's anger, I don't even know I'm grateful. I have no idea. I'm just angry. No right? grace. No grace. Definitely no grace. Right. Exactly. No grace. I don't know where I need to exercise. It's just like all gone. So putting the emotions in their place helps us to organize our thinking and helps us to control our behavior. Right. Because now I see things in perspective. I love that. I love that. I know people are going to be, I can hear them like writing down the five G's. <laughs> Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of Tell Me Something True, and I co-created the show with Laura. We built TMST and our online community with the hope of creating a sane spot on the internet. We're really passionate about the ad-free nature of this work. Our belief is that this project will work best if we're not hustling to keep advertisers happy, and we keep our attention on you, the TMST community. This is where you can play a major role. TMST Plus is the membership group that helps to keep this podcast going. Whether it's through a monthly membership or a one-time contribution, TMST Plus members are vital to this experiment. As a TMST Plus member, you get to join Laura for member-only events, send in questions for the guests, hear the complete unedited interviews, and connect with other TMST community members. You know, sometimes we feel like we can't make a difference in the world. With a TMST Plus membership, 
you can be keeping this space alive and thriving for a one-time gift or for as little as 10 bucks a month. You can find the link in the show description. And then please head over to tmstpod.com right now to support the show. And thanks. Okay, so I want to move towards the concept of unconscious bias. Yeah. Tell us what unconscious bias is and why yeah. it matters. Well, unconscious bias, I think in some cases it's been given a bad rap. And in some cases, rightfully so, right? So what is unconscious bias? Basically, let's go back to Neanderthal again. And we talked about the, the amygdala. And remember that our brains were not fully developed when the, excuse me, Neanderthal existed. So Neanderthal had three responses, right? It was fight, flight, or freeze. And the reason why that was so important was because when they stepped outside of their cave, if something was coming at them, they had to decide very quickly because if they didn't, they could be eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. Right. That part of our brain has not yet evolved. Or when I say yet, will it ever be evolved? Right? So we still operate with the amygdala, which is very important. Because yeah. if I walk outside right now and there's an 18-wheeler coming at me, fight, flight, or freeze is really important. I don't want to be looking in the window of the, of the 18-wheeler going, oh, I wonder who, if I know that guy. <laughs> right. Why? We have to be able to assess threats. <laughs> exactly. So I need to be able to have that skill or that tool to go into fight, flight, or freeze if it's necessary. So we need it. We need that mm -hmm. unconscious bias. On the flip side of that, it's very damaging when it comes to a person. So whenever I see someone who is different from me, I begin to assess them. Is fight, flight, or freeze necessary? And so whether it's someone who is black, whether it's someone who is Muslim, whether it's, a, it's someone who is Jewish, whether it's a, a, a woman walking into an, a boardroom where there's all men, whatever the difference is, I immediately start to ask myself, is fight, flight, or freeze necessary? And it happens subconsciously. We do not think about these right. It's Right. It's just the way we're made. Yeah. It's just the way we're made. Thank you for saying that. And so the idea then is to interrupt those biases. The idea then mm. is to manage them so that we can get to a point of really understanding people. Um, I love this quote by uh, Dr. Eberhardt out of Stanford. She says that we always say that seeing is believing, but really believing is seeing. So we mm. have this idea of what people are, who they are based on what they look like. And we believe uh, what we wanna believe based on what we think about those aspects, as opposed yes. to getting to know them and then forming beliefs. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Okay, so that's really helpful. Would you say that a lot, a lot of the issues that come up, or, or a good part of the issues that come up, uh, conflict between people is a result of unconscious bias in some way? Sure. Um, we have um, these, what I call unspoken rules, right, in our, in our heads. Mm. And, um, it does has, have a lot to do with, with, um, with bias. And so when someone breaks that unspoken rule, it will determine how angry, how frustrated, how irritated we get. I'm sitting in the dentist's office and suppose my unspoken rule is, you can't be late to assist me. I might go zero to 60 in 10 seconds. But if that's not my unspoken rule, I might not have the same challenges in order to problem solve through that issue. Some people's unspoken rule is don't step in front of me um, in a line. I mean, other people's like, oh, hey, did you realize I was here? And it's not that big of a deal, right? <laughs> so the unspoken <laughs> rules really do dictate how we respond in a situation. And that's why you'll hear some people say, well, why are you keeping care? That was not a big deal. But that was not su such a big issue. Well, that's not your unspoken rule. So you're not going to take it the same way as someone else would. <laughs> I just thought of a huge one. The interrupting. Oh. I found that I noticed that, and this is 
just was my experience. I noticed that I would get interrupted as a woman. I was often in offices with a lot of men. Mm-hmm. They would interrupt each other and or not. What I noticed is I got interrupted a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I felt like I had to really fight for airtime. Yeah. So I'm like that would be and and so when it did happen even though perhaps they were interrupting each other too, I would flip out. Sure. Right. And, and that can be an example perhaps of this thing that I had going on in my head mm-hmm. and maybe a thing that they had going on in their heads too. These unspoken rules or the sort of rules of engagement that we're, we're playing different rules of engagement. Sure. And it created a massive amount of internal conflict for me. Is that something yeah. that, that you come up against in, in offices a lot? Yeah, well, well, two things. One is, statistically speaking, women are interrupted more than men. Statistically speaking. So yeah, you're, I know. you're like not out of out of the box with with, that, with those thinking. But if, they're, if that's just their MO, then it's not necessarily about you. That's, that's just the way they roll. But if that's your unspoken rule, it takes you to another place. It really does. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It allows you to be less creative, less productive, less motivated. Yeah. So yeah. that's a lot to do with yeah. this. Is it, you know, it's harder to forgive when it, someone has broken one of your unspoken rules. Okay, so let's talk about forgiveness because I feel like this is where the rubber sort of meets, like hits the road with people. Your approach seems to be to be a very like functional process of forgiveness. Can you walk yeah. us through sort of the anatomy and practice of forgiveness? Sure. So let me just start by saying that many people don't forgive because they don't know what forgiveness is. They assume mm. that it means that the person who wronged them should not have a consequence for their behavior or that it diminishes the harm that was caused or Mm. that they are less than if they forgive. So it really does play into a whole nother thought process when you think about forgiveness. So understanding what forgiveness is, it really is, again, back to putting things in its place. That's number one. It has a lot to do with seeing the offense as an opportunity for your own growth. So Mm -hmm. now I'm not taking this personally, but how is this growing me in some way? And then asking the question, what am I afraid of? Because that fear takes us into flight, fight, or freeze mode. And you're talking about the person who needs to, the person who has been wronged or harmed yes. asks themselves, what am I afraid of if, of by forgiving this person, my it's refusal to forgive this person, what am I, what, what am right. I afraid of? Okay. Yeah. And then the other question um, that what's really important to ask is, especially if they've had, you know, anger for some time is what purpose is this anger serving me? When people are holding on to anger about something, it's serving a purpose. Sometimes they're even romancing this anger, right? They're just so engaged in this anger. And so releasing it means that I've got to find another way to fill it. Like, what am I going to put in its place? And it becomes very habit forming for some people. So being able to step outside of that. And releasing the anger is one of the key hallmarks of forgiveness. But the first step in forgiveness, really, believe it or not, is telling your story. And sometimes that means telling it to someone outside of the work, whether it's a therapist, whether it's a sponsor, if you're in recovery or, or whatever. But that is the most important part of this whole process is being able to tell your story, naming um, the emotions to tame them. And then you're in a space then to walk through the other steps um, to actually practice forgiveness. And what are some of the, because I've been there many times, what are some of the reasons that we glorify, romanticize, hold on to our anger? Yeah. So one thing I think is really important is that we don't know we have an option. Ah. 
right? right. So as some, this happened, this offense happened, I've been harmed, I'm supposed to be angry. And not knowing what to do next causes us to stay stuck. Yeah. The other thing is that we think that we're, get, we're letting them off the hook um, if, if we forgive. And we don't realize that it's really about nurturing ourselves when we forgive. It's, it's a self-nurturing yeah. act. Yes, it does benefit the other person, but bigger than that, it's, it's, it's self-nurturing. And again, we, it's serving a purpose. We don't like to consider that option because we just feel like it's this cancer. I want to get it out, but then why am I holding on to it so closely? So it's very dichotomous in nature. It is. It's very sexy in a way, or, or seductive, rather, is a better word, to stay in that. Yeah. It also, anger is a very unusual, if you will, emotion in that it causes us to feel as if we're doing something about it. Because it takes up I so know. much energy when really nothing is happening, right? There isn't any progress, yeah, but we yeah. feel that it is because it's so in- encompassing. It takes up so much of our being. And it can be physical in nature. We can, we can mm. lose sleep. We can have headaches and belly aches and back aches and, I mean, on and on and on. So it really does take up so much of our being. Oh, God, it's so true. It really does make you feel like you're doing something. <laughs> what are the things, the areas perhaps that you see people struggle with the most in your work, the, the areas of harm or hurt or forgive, you know, areas that require forgiveness that the, the themes that you see. I think that to answer this from a workplace perspective, people have a hard time with emotions. Um, part, now this is, has a lot to do with age because the baby boomers were taught that emotions don't belong in the workplace, right? Right. We get at the door. We don't want to know how you feel. If I didn't invite you to the happy hour, get over it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. but I think that what's harder, though, for people is the whole race and ethnicity thing um, in the workplace. Yeah. Racial anxiety is a thing. What do you mean by racial anxiety? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, so it can mean that um, I feel this sense of difference around someone and so I act differently around them. I have this anxiety, so I don't treat them the same way I would someone else because I don't know how, I don't know that, I don't understand this ethnicity. I don't understand this difference. Mm. So I don't know what to do. Mm. So I then withdraw. Mm. So I'm less creative mm. in the workplace. I'm less productive in the workplace, particularly around this person, this race, this gender. Um, and it creates a sense of anxiety. And that's, uh, I think that's probably one of the biggest ones. I, and I think that what's so interesting to me about it is that when you have racial anxiety, you tend to operate opposite your values. So Ooh. in other words, your values might be to be kind, might be to um, embrace difference. But then when it comes down to it, the amygdala starts popping up and saying, fight, flight, or freeze. And then you do the exact opposite. I'll give an example that is not, not related to race, but several years ago, I went to visit, I was went to a meeting in an office that I had never been to before. And there was this woman behind the desk and she was probably about, I don't know, maybe six, 700 pounds. And I had never seen anybody that size before in person. And right. I was sitting there and I was staring at her. And whenever she would look up at me, I'd look down. I was pretending I was reading a magazine. And then when she'd look up, I'd, I'd look at her again. And we exchanged these glances back and forth. And suddenly I looked up and my timing was off and her eyes caught mine. Mm. And when she saw me for the first time, I saw her. Wow. And that's an example of racial anxiety because I was doing something that is opposite my values. And so I know what it feels like to be stared at. I know what that feels like firsthand, many times over. But yet I was doing this to her because of this anxiety that I was feeling because she was different. Because I was operating with my amygdala as opposed to my neocortex and thinking this is a real person 
And you know what it feels like to be stared at, Sharon. So that's an example of how racial anxiety can play out. We do things that are very different from our actual values. And that's the reason why I think it's so important to assume positive intent. Because you weren't doing that. You weren't doing that because you were, you thought anything. It was like a... Curiosity in, in a negative way, um, you know, and, um, and, and just like this person is different. So um, that's why I think it's really important to, again, to really crown our lives with, a, 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 you know, assuming positive intent about people. That's a beautiful example. Thank you for that. So let's close with, we got a, a question from one of our members. I see myself as a person of high emotional intelligence, but I have to interact and work with someone who is, from my point of view, of lower EQ, EQ mm-hmm. uh, and not self-aware. I know it's not my job to fix them, but it is painful and tiring and stressful to not be able to interact with them at a, at a higher level. What would you say I do in that situation? Yeah, and that's really hard. I just want to acknowledge and validate that that is really challenging. But one of the best things that you can do is to model high emotional intelligence. Very often when we interact with people who um, might be considered a toxic personality, we withdraw from them. We're like, oh my gosh, I I don't even want to deal with this person. And then if everybody takes that approach, then learning for them is really difficult. But we want to draw ourselves in with boundaries and every opportunity we get we demonstrate high emotional intelligence. And because really I'm, I can teach you how to treat me, right? I really can yes. do that. That is a thing. I can teach you how to treat me. And so that's really what needs to happen is just this modeling in a way that's non-judgmental, that assumes positive intent, that embraces um, the fact that we're all on this journey to learn and grow. That's good. It's hard. <laughs> That's it's hard. hard to do sometimes. Hard, but there's a nuance there. Just shifting that mindset is a huge nuance. Yeah. Because when I'm irritated, I'm frustrated, I think you're toxic, then my body language is going to show it. And now the person's going to be more toxic because they can sense this energy like, you don't like me, you don't want to be around me. But when I'm leaning in, when I am modeling good e- emotional intelligence skills, when I'm generally curious about your life, about your work, then that shifting of the brain, that shifting of my actions can actually create an environment to where I can actually teach you how to treat me. Yeah. Assuming positive intent also comes in mm-hmm. mightily in this type yes. of situation because, yes. you know, it's easy to just assume they're just a crappy person. Yeah, you know, but, but totally. Most of the time, that's just not the case. Yes. You don't know what's going on with them. I love that, that you said that. Wow, I'm going to have to use that. It's easier to make that assumption, right? Now I'm off the hook because you're you're an idiot. Totally. So I'm done. I am finished. As opposed to thinking of what creative ways can I demonstrate or can I model emotional intelligence, that takes so much more energy, doesn't it? Assuming positive intent so much more energy. energy. So thank you for lifting that up. Well, this has been, this is wonderful. I'm so grateful that you're in the world doing the work that you're doing. And I have a good amount of awareness about these concepts, you know, especially emotional intelligence, but it's so helpful to think of them in the way that you're approaching them. I'm really grateful that you're doing the work that you're doing in the world and that you are willing to spend some time with me. Absolutely. And thank you for having me. It's been a delight. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, previews of upcoming guests, invites to join me for members-only events, and access to our members-only community where I hang out a lot, especially now that I'm not on social media. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. 
We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means that we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want. But it also means we're 100% reliant on your support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member, or you can simply make a one-time donation of as little as $5. I cannot stress this enough. You can make a huge difference for as little as $5. Please head over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show, and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True.